This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Bring Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogan. This is podcast episode 241, and we are taking a different tactic than we would normally take here on the podcast this week, while we generally focus on the technical and the pragmatic for our audience of brewers. Today, we're going to back out a little bit and talk about theory and human development and evolution in the place of alcohol. In all of that, and joining me for the podcast this week is Edward Ted Slingerland, author of the book Drunk, also distinguished university scholar, professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to the podcast, Ted. Thanks for having me. I know I saw you on some other popular media last year as uh, as the book came out. You've certainly done bigger podcasts than this and uh, done some television <laughs> appearances. And, yeah. uh, um, and, and yet, as I... I picked up your book and, and started reading it last year. I was struck by the argument that it made that the consumption of alcohol in the history of human evolution is not uh, an accident. It's not a bug. It is a feature, as you will, that uh, the, you, it's hard to separate the evolution of human species as a successful uh, entity on this planet uh, you know, compared to other animal life forms. It's hard to separate that from the consumption of, of alcohol itself. It's an intriguing idea, especially for those of us who often find ourselves making apologies uh, for, yeah. you know, for alcohol here. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to dive in through this podcast and talk to you about the argument that you make and some of the research that you've done that backs up some of these arguments to kind of understand how it is that that human evolution and alcohol are, are just inextricably combined. But before we do that, for nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. G&D stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. G&D also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in-house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real-world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, support for this episode comes from BSG. Did you know the BSG sources hops directly from growers and processes them in their FSSC certified facility in Yakima Valley? From Azaka to Zappa, BSG's hops are pelletized for optimal dispersion in the boiler or FV and packaged in nitrogen flushed bags to preserve all of those tasty and enticing aromatics. To learn more about how your hops go from farmer to fermenter, get in touch with BSG at Let's Talk Hops at bsgcraft.com. Um, so a little background on me. I, I've mentioned it in podcasts in the past, but I was a religious studies major uh, in oh, college okay. and, in, and intended to uh, you know become a Presbyterian minister as I, as I went to school. Uh, didn't work out that way. But I have uh, I, I that is uh, it. When I saw your background as a, a professor of philosophy, also with a, a large background, also in, in the study of religion, um, found it particularly interesting and loved the fact that, that aligned with uh, this subject of alcohol. But talk to me a little bit about what drove your interest in alcohol and the consumption of alcohol and this history of human evolution. How what what uh, sparked the interest in this subject? 
Yeah, there's a couple of different connections with my previous work. So the, you know, my my home field is early Chinese religion and philosophy. And I've worked a lot on this concept in early China. It's called Wu Wei. So effortless action is how I translate it. But it's a state, it's kind of like being in the zone. So you're in a state where you lose a sense of yourself as an agent, you're relaxed, you're completely unselfconscious, and yet everything you do works out. Uh, you're socially successful, you're successful in the physical world. Uh, so the early Chinese philosophers all want to get you into this state of spontaneity. But they have this problem with, that I call the paradox of spontaneity or the paradox of Wu Wei, which is how do you, how do you try not to try? So that's my, my first trade book is called Trying Not to Try, and it's about this paradox. Um, and it is a genuine cognitive paradox. When you're when I tell you relax or you know be cool, <laughs> don't try so hard. Sure, sure. Um, the part of your brain that I'm activating is actually the part that needs to get shut down. It's the prefrontal cortex, the, the center of cognitive control. And so the the early Chinese philosophers of all these different techniques for trying to get around this paradox so meditation breathing techniques or using ritual but uh there's a there's one story in this Taoist text where uh physical drunkenness being drunk on alcohol is compared is used as a, me as a metaphor for this state of Wu Wei. and it occurred to me that hey maybe uh alcohol is is a cultural technology that people have developed for getting around this paradox because you can't, if I tell you, hey, try to relax, it's going to be counterproductive. If I hand you a beer and let you sit and drink it for an hour, maybe that'll work. You know, it's a, it's a way to kind of directly reach in. You can't directly shut down your prefrontal cortex sure. through your own prefrontal cortex. So this is a tool for kind of reaching in and dialing it down a couple notches. So that's what got me interested in the possible cultural social functions of alcohol yeah this subject of of creativity and as you say trying not to try is when i was just listening to on another podcast as they had a creativity expert you know stating the same kind of argument that that conscious effort is uh, actually counterproductive and that most of you know amazing most creative breakthroughs come when you are not focused on that that when the mind wanders mm -hmm. um, that's certainly an argument that you make also in the book and that this prefrontal cortex which is an amazing piece of the brain for accomplishing you know all sorts of executive tasks for being uh, you know functional and being uh, you know um, productive and efficient mm -hmm. um, and able to accomplish things that we need to accomplish as humans incredibly important for that um, but also directly uh, conflicts with our need to think in nonlinear ways or ways outside of that uh, you know direct executive function. Yeah, so the, the PFC is really crucial, as you say, for certain tasks, like linear algorithmic tasks where you need to focus. It's very clear how you're going to, you know, what needs to get done to get from A to B. And we need it. So uh, evolution had, has this kind of design tension where we need to have fully functioning PFCs to get to work on time, to get our jobs done, to function as adults. But then there are certain tasks, uh, creativity, so tasks that involve lateral thinking or thinking outside the box. Um, also social trust. So, you know, being open to other people and learning to trust other people. In these cases, the PFC is actually a problem. 
So um, evolution kind of was like, well, we got to give them a PFC. <laughs> and then what humans being clever have figured out how to do is say, okay, we have PFCs. It's a good thing. But in certain situations where maybe it's getting in the way that part of the brain is being counterproductive, let's figure out ways to turn it down. And there, there are various ways we can do that, but the, the easiest and most effective is ethanol. That's pretty fascinating. So walk me then through this, you know, then this basic thesis is that alcohol itself is has become this evolutionary adaptation with human beings to turn off that part of the PFC when it's necessary to do that for, for whatever that problem solving or creative thinking is, you know, and then we can pop, pop it back into PFC mode, uh, you know, when necessary to, to operate in that kind of way. Um, how do you look at this and, uh, you know, in a historical sense and, and walk me through this kind of timeline of, of early human evolution as we started to become humans, um, you know, what some of that uh, functioning allowed to happen in the very earliest days of humanity? Yeah, so the the standard story about alcohol from a scientific perspective is that it's just a it's an evolutionary mistake. So it's a byproduct. The standard, uh, the most common theory is basically a hijack theory. So right. um, ethanol hijacks reward networks in the brain that evolve for other reasons, and it's just we're clever primates. We figure out we can pick this pleasure lock with this substance. And so that's why we use alcohol. Um, so in that sense, it's it's like junk food or masturbation. There's all sorts of evolutionary right, right. mistakes. Um, the, most vices that humans get involved in um, involve this kind of either misuse or hijacking of a pleasure network in the brain that, that evolve for other reasons. Um, I, I became dis when I started looking into the science and the history of alcohol, I became really dubious about this story just because, uh, I mean, the two things about alcohol, one is the, the high costs. So it's really, it's a really dangerous substance. Uh, it's got all sure. these health problems. It can lead to all these social problems. So unlike for instance, masturbation, it's extremely costly. Um, it's also unlike junk food, um, ancient. It's, we've been doing, humans have been producing and consuming alcohol. And this is something I really didn't realize and so, until I started doing the research for the book. Um, we've been producing and consuming alcohol for as long as we've been doing anything as a species in an organized fashion before even agriculture. So, right. so the, the surprising thing, once I started digging into the history, I always thought, again, the standard story is, you know, we invented agriculture, we started living in these large scale communities. And then at a certain point, again, a kind of mistake story, um, someone left some, you know, porridge sitting out too long and it started to ferment and we tasted it and it made us feel good. And we thought, oh, this is cool. Let's start making this deliberately. Um, so the standard story is that alcohol production was kind of a byproduct a mistake right. after agriculture. But if you look at the data, it actually seems that human beings were gathering together, producing alcohol, uh, engaging in these large scale festivals way before agriculture. Um, so they were deliberately coming together and producing alcohol, um, not only before agriculture, but the suggestion is that the desire to produce more and better alcohol may have been the impetus to actually settle down and start start growing crops deliberately in the first place. 
creating alcohol at that point would have been incredibly resource intensive, like massively resource intensive for, you know, nomadic hunter gatherers um, and come at a huge cost where what they are potentially using to create alcohol then is something that they are not ingesting as calories to keep themselves alive. And when you are a nomadic hunter gatherer, you know, in uh, 10,000 BCE, I mean, that's a humongous decision to make at that point. Yeah. It's, um, well, as you know, especially making beers is technically pretty challenging. There are a lot of steps involved. It's, you're not giving up calories necessarily. So there are some okay. advantages to taking grain sure, and converting sure. it into alcohol. Um, it's It's got a lot of calories. There's also um, what's called biological ennoblement. So one, one theory about early agricultural societies is that the way they manage to survive on very monotonous diets. So once we move from being hunter-gatherers to settling down, you know, in the Fertile Crescent into these agricultural communities, um, your average person's diet got really crappy. I mean, they used as hunter-gatherers, they were eating, you know, fruits, vegetables, meats, and then suddenly they're living on a diet of bread, mostly bread. Um, and it's a bit of a puzzle why they didn't get sick um, without nutrients. And, and one of the theories is that it's because they were drinking beer as well. Um, because when you ferment beer, you actually um, create a bunch of micronutrients that are very important. Um, so there is, uh, you know, once we get into settled societies, alcohol is playing a function in terms of providing us with some nutrition and important vitamins. Um, but the, I think the really crucial part is that it's um, it's the motivation for doing that in the first place. So if you not just in the Fertile Crescent, if you look around the world, uh, you see that the first cultivated plants are being cultivated for their psychoactive properties, not for their nutrition. So in in South America, teosinte, which is the ancestor to maize to corn, was got cultivated and it didn't get cultivated for making tortillas or bread because (laughs) teosinte makes terrible uh it doesn't make very good bread products what it does make is really good beer so chicha this fermented beverage that they make now out of maize um so basically no one would have noticed this plant if they weren't interested in alcohol production and not not grain production and again, other parts of the world, you see the same thing. The first, the first cultivated plants, people seem to be attracted to because they do something to their mind. Sure. Um, I want to get in and talk a little bit about why that is and what it was that made you know early humans then you know focus on this. What kind of adaptations that might have allowed in that human population that would allow them to thrive? Because you know even at that point you're we're you know as a part of a primate family. There are lots of other animals that could have certainly thrived in the same kind of way for various other reasons. And I think there's this interesting element that allows alcohol in conjunction with human beings to make some of the steps, certainly socially. Let's talk a little bit about that. But first, is your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients? Historic heat waves devastated U.S. berry crops, causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends, which mimic straight concentrates, but at a better price point and with a more reliable supply. Is it any surprise that Old Orchard's best sellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins 
and order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, as craft beer's most trusted point-of-sale system arrived is the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction. With a full suite of craft-specific features, no contracts and no monthly fees, Arrived provides the necessary tools to help your brewery grow. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash CBB. Remember, there is no I in Arrived. So, Ted, let's talk about that. Clearly, early humans were putting a lot of resources into alcohol, uh, creating alcohol, ethanol-based alcohol in various ways. Um, what then you know, is this step that that allowed hum- you know, human species to take that uh, allowed it to, to say, jumpstart or uh, you know, throw into warp speed this development of human beings as then the, you know, what is now the, the most dominant species on the planet? We're a weird species. We're a very weird primate. And so part of what I have to explore in Drunk is if I'm arguing alcohol's adaptive, I've got to explain what our ecological niche is that it's helping us adapt to. And, and the ecological niche that humans fill is unusual. One of the features is that we're creative and we're dependent on creativity. So we're tool users. Um, human beings cannot live without tools. We, we literally cannot live without fire, right? Which is yeah. a tool. And then, you know, all these various tools we invent for hunting and gathering, and processing food, and um, all the way up to this laptop, you know, we're talking on now. So, uh, we, we depend on tools and having tools requires creativity. You're always innovating with tool sets. Um, you're competing against other cultural groups who are innovating in their tool sets. And if they do a better job than you, you're in trouble. So we're dependent on this kind of lateral thinking creativity. So, you know, I talked about this tension. We've, we've got to have a PFC to be able to get out of bed and get to work on time and do our job, but we need creativity. So, so one thing alcohol allowed was for people to temporarily um, essentially reverse the development of our brains. So we're very creative. We're very good at lateral thinking when we're four years old, <laughs> but we also have no sure. PFC, right? We can't tie our shoes. We can't focus. Um, and as people grow up until actually the PFC doesn't fully mature until you're in your 20s, uh, one of the thing, your creativity goes down. So if you want to think about one function of alcohol, it's reversing that developmental process. It's taking us back temporarily to having the kind of flexibility that a four-year-old has, but only for a couple hours. And then we pop out of it and we're grownups again. And we can use, take advantage of those insights and do something useful with them. Uh, so that's one special feature of us as a species. The other feature is that we're communal. We, we cooperate on a scale, especially in large-scale societies, that other primates could never pull off. Um, so our, our nearest relatives, chimpanzees, live in small bands. They're very suspicious and hostile toward strangers. Um, the primatologist uh, Sarah Blaffer-Hardy has this famous chapter of a book called uh, Apes on a Plane. She talks about the fact that if you put a bunch of chimps, you try to get a bunch of chimps to sit still in economy class, uh, at you, the plane would pull up the other end and you just have a tube full of body parts and blood. They would just tear each other apart. Oof. Um, cause primates do not cooperate with strangers. Um, humans cooperate with strangers. 
humans are like D- despite the, some factions of our humanity's idea that we can be solo operators and somehow um successful without a community or uh, you know they are in that that kind of uh element you know you're right that uh this communal aspect is what has produced the success of humanity um and where how you define that uh you know, compared to other primates you know what we might define as individuality is in a sense much more communal than we might want to admit that it is absolutely yeah there's this myth especially in america and kind of it started in yeah. northern europe this myth of individuality that we kind of invent things on our own and society started when we were wandering alone in the woods and we met in a clearing and shook hands and decided to form a society <laughs> you know that's absurd we were pack right. animals and we've always been pack animals um but we're we're funny because we you know the the biology we have is very much primate biology but culture and various cultural technologies has given us these tools that allow us trick our brains into ex- essentially expanding our cooperation network expanding our families um, one of those tools is religion. So a lot of my previous work focused on how um, certain types of religious beliefs and practices allow us to trust others more readily and um, you know fuse with others into a larger social group. Um, but another important tool is alcohol. So um, another uh, benefit of turning down the PFC is it makes you both more trustworthy. It's harder for you to lie. So lying is a cognitively really demanding thing to do. If I'm lying to you about something, I've got to keep in my brain at the same time what I'm telling you is true and also what I know to be true. I've got to suppress any facial expressions or emotions that are inconsistent with what I'm telling you to be true, even though they may be happening in my brain. It's really hard. Lying really requires your PFC to be in top shape. Um, You impair the PFC you make it hard for people to lie. Um, so, so one one analogy I use is in the same way, where you know hostile adults who need to cooperate on something will shake hands to show they're not carrying a weapon. They'll then sit down and start drinking alcohol, and that's the same function. You're basically reaching into your brain, taking out your PFC, and putting it on the table, and saying, you know, I'm I'm cognitively disarmed, and so you can trust the things that I'm saying. Um, so, so it's been, alcohol has been this very important tool in cognitively disarming people so that they could get past cooperation dilemmas. It also is ramping up, uh, endorphins and serotonin, feel good chemicals. So you, you're, you're liking the people you're with more than you would otherwise. You're liking yourself more. You're feeling expansive and good about yourself. So it's been a crucial tool as well for getting basically selfish, suspicious primates, which is what we are at some level, to more easily cooperate on a large scale. I love the the point you made about this bit of evolutionary arms race that we're in, especially when it comes to to lying, you know, and that our ability to lie moves hand in hand in evolutionary scale with our ability to detect lies, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that. Uh, you know, as you watch this, we become better and better at lying, but you also become better and better at detecting smaller and smaller and smaller micro signals of that yeah. lying. You know, and so, you know, regardless, you know, getting into that disarming point of of uh, you know alcohol consumption through the history of of, of you know, human uh, you know social uh, interaction, 
you know, alcohol has been used is in that very same function, you know, socially to bring down barriers and, you know, to create spaces of trust, uh, you know, through important events and whatnot. Yeah, that's why, you, you know, you see there was a prediction when Skype got invented, right, that people would just stop traveling for business. Like, why would you fly from London to Shanghai to sign a contract when you could just do it over Skype? Um, and yet people kept traveling. I mean, it took the pand global pandemic to have any effect on business travel. And I predict that business travel is going to bounce right back once the pandemic's fully over. Right. Um, and that's because this has been, you know, Every, all throughout the history of, of human beings, human civilization, anytime you get potentially hostile individuals sitting down and having to come to a, some sort of agreement, or at least individuals who might have different interests, um, the alcohol comes out or some similar substance. So in the few parts of the world where they don't have alcohol, they have some other substance that does the same thing, kava, or in some cases, sure. um, hallucinogen-laced tobaccos. Um, but And that's revealing too. So when you don't have alcohol, you need to find something else that'll serve the same function. So this has been, um, you know, there's a very real sense in which alcohol has been this kind of glue that has helped keep societies together and keep civilizations together. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think it's interesting when we look at it, even from a, you know, kind of a sensory standpoint, um, the technology always keeps up with um, the evolutionary adaptations. I mean, I think about it in terms of like we've talked about it here on the podcast, whether it's taste sensory, whether it's visual sensory, all of these senses are developing constantly. I, I mean, our ability to um, identify and parse smaller and smaller details now getting is come to the point where we have, you know, 300 DPI screens on our handheld devices <laughs> right. where you know, uh, but I even look at it in a sense like if I look back at digital photos taken from the early 2000s, they look like old pictures. Yeah. And, th you know, th even though they were the pixels are the exact same data that they were in 2000 when I took those digital pictures, they feel old because our demand and expectation for things like contrast and vibrance and mm. color saturation um, because of the technology that we have and we're constantly being fed in this kind of sensory realm is so much more heightened. And, and so even then, even though it was the exact same thing, we perceived it differently then than we do it, do now based on this kind of changing evolutionary context. Same thing happens for, with flavor. You know, we have ideas of what things tasted like, you know, and now um, our our lexicon for flavors is so much more broad than it might've been 20 or 30 years ago. And the inputs that we have constantly and the, the, even the evolution of our food supply and food producers trying to heighten and create higher and higher expectations of these things. It just changes that context that we approach it from. And it's interesting in that same kind of way, right? You know, we have these technologies, but a digital technology that connects us is still makes it, and even in a business or in a interpersonal sense, that much more impactful or important to make that, you know, face-to-face, -face, you know, personal individual connection. Um, and so even though we think we're going to get away from these things, it still becomes such an important part of, of just that baseline idea of being human. Yeah, no, the real world is always where where we live. <laughs> and so digital <laughs> technologies can can fill in for some things. But whenever it comes to important decisions or something where we really need to know the people we're dealing with, um, we want to see them in person. 
we want to, and you're missing, I mean, even right now we've got a great internet connections, really nice interface. Um, our timing is going to be slightly off because even the slightest right. delay, um, conversations, the way people time conversations is on the like microsecond level where I'm picking up cues that you're done talking and I can talk now, or I can, um, get a sense of, yeah, you're getting a little bored. Maybe I should change topics. All that gets screwed up with even the slightest time delay. Um, and then it gets much worse when I don't have all your body language, right? I can't see everything you're doing. Um, so people are always going to want to meet in person. And then, you know, in order to get over then the potential um, tensions or hostilities or distrust that happens when you put a bunch of primates in a close quarters together, um, you're going to need some technology for tamping that down and relaxing people. Um, so it's, you know, this is why chemical intoxicants in general and, and alcohol in particular, uh, have been just ubiquitous features. Any, anywhere you find humans, you find them sure. drinking socially. And that was an interesting point that you, you make in the book about the, you know, a study with rats and, you know, consuming alcohol and finding that that close quarter and chronic stress, yeah. um, seems to lead to, you know, greater alcohol consumption, that it becomes this mode of, of allowing for tighter quarters and, and, you know, concentration of humanity. So in that sense, you know, if you extrapolate from that, you know, as human populations increased alcohol could have can certainly be seen as this technological mechanism that allowed humans to exist in closer, consistent contact with each other. Yeah. So it's, you know, ironically, so the desire to produce more and better alcohol caused us to settle down in these very dense communities where suddenly we're shoulder to shoulder with other people. Um, and, but then served as a tool that helped us cope with that. So it's got, alcohol has got a bunch of functions that are all happening simultaneously. And that's one of them is it's just basic stress reduction. So again, you know, it's, people use alcohol socially to help get along in situations where there might be tensions or distrust. They also use it, you know, at the end of the day to relax from the day of work, um, to, to make the transition from PFC dominated work mode where you're focused, you're getting things done, you're moving from A to B to a more relaxed, expansive state that you want to tend to have, for instance, with your family at the end of the day. Um, this again is something humans have been doing forever. Um, so it's got, um, you know, alcohol's got a bunch of different functions. They overlap to a certain extent, but the, the really crucial takeaway, I think, is that it's not our desire to drink and the fact that we've been making alcohol is not an evolutionary mistake. And it's not simply a vice. It actually has all of these important functions. And, and those, the fact that we haven't seen that, I think, has really impoverished our discussions about alcohol. Because we've sure. seeing it seeing it as basically the equivalent of pornography or cocaine or Twinkies has made it impossible for us to really talk intelligently about you know, costs and benefits of alcohol and what role it should play in our lives. So so it's important to have that functional piece. Well, as a cheerleader and apologist for craft beer, uh, you are speaking my language on okay. this. Um, and we can talk, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of those lines, because clearly there are lines, you know, in that consumption of alcohol where up to a point it can be productive and then past a certain point it can, it can um, 
you know, flip and have more negative results. Before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's pilot brew house to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. So you mentioned you know, that often cultures have that expectation with with alcohol consumption also comes understanding the limits of that. And, you know, this kind of, especially when you're speaking about truthfulness, you know, there is this point where um, being able to consume alcohol, but also understand one's limits and operate within one's limits um, becomes a, a culturally prized behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so alcohol is is two-faced in certain ways. And I talk about this in terms of the Greek god Dionysus, where he can give you these amazing gifts, but you also have to be careful about them. So he's the one who gave Midas the golden touch, right? Which seemed like a good idea, but turned out not to be. Um, So the Greeks were, were worshiped Dionysus, but were also wary of him. They realized he could be dangerous. And you see this same kind of ambivalence about alcohol in every culture. So in ancient China, they celebrate these early poems, celebrate the power of alcohol to bring people together, to gladden the heart, to make the ancestors happy when you sacrifice it to them. Um, right alongside these warnings about drunkenness and excessive drinking and chaos. So people have always been aware that alcohol is a dangerous substance. Historically, we've had a couple techniques for for keeping it safer than it is recently. So, So part of the argument of the book is actually alcohol has become more dangerous recently than it's been for our evolutionary history. So the two safety features are first of all, um, just natural limits to fermentation. So as you know, you guys brewers, you know there's a limit to how strong you can get a beer or wine, right? At a certain point, the yeast start to poison themselves and just shut down. Um, Now, people in your industry have been ruthlessly driving (laughs) yeast to become more and more resistant to alcohol. So, um, you know, you can get craft. I don't know. What's the most powerful craft beer you can get now? Oh, you know, we can get into decent beer fermentation into the the low 20s range. So that's crazy. Even even above the wine. You know, there are plenty of more than wine. Okay, Wow. You know, using enzymes to kind of promote this fermentation and, you know, turbocharge those yeasts. You can do that. But 15% is generally that kind of top end for most most beers. Right. uh, um, But having said that, like even recently, and there was that moment earlier uh, in the last decade where, uh, you know, brewers were in that arms race to see how big they could make something. And um, thank goodness we've turned a bit of a corner on that and are are settling back in as more people discover lagers and four and 5% beers and the beauty of, uh, of more thoughtful uh, and artful execution and, and uh, yeah, uh, beers that you can drink more of quantity without, uh, you know, going down this kind of dark rabbit hole. But I, I yeah, well, that's what that's what we're designed to drink, basically. So we, yeah. you know, we spent most of our evolutionary history uh, drinking beers and, you know, in some degree, fruit wines that came in. The beers typically came in at two, three percent ABV. Right. Um, the grape wines higher, but not that high. Um, and so alcohol came with a kind of built-in safety feature. It's it's really hard to get dangerously drunk on a two three percent beer, 
especially right. if you're sipping it in a social situation. Um, so that's one of the features um, that's made alcohol relatively safe that got um, completely removed when we invented distillation. <laughs> so sure, so sure. one of the one of the the new and this is new and this I didn't quite realize this until I was doing the research for the book we we think of distilled spirits as always being around um distillation distillation as a concept has been understood forever aristotle wrote about it um the early chinese knew about it but people it's technically hard to pull off you need to have you know be able to make vessels that can hold liquids under heat you need to be able to control temperature carefully so we really didn't pull off distillation and it's very possible scale. if you don't have that technology to create something that will just kill you yeah just, yeah so you know, it's it, right. it's it's really dangerous you can hard make to methanol off. rather than ethanol and then you're just <laughs> going to poison yourself you're right? going to poison yourself so so we didn't have safe safe to drink distilled spirits on a large scale until china probably did, figured it out first so their um, thoughts are maybe 14th century um, in Europe, it really wasn't until the, the 16th, 17th century that we had distilled liquors on a large scale. So yeah, so so distillation is a is a basically we invented it yesterday um, compared to this evolutionary story I'm telling, where 10 million years ago we had primate ancestors who adapted to eating fermenting fruit on the ground, and then you know humans invent beers and wines. We, we've started brewing beers definitely by 13,000 years ago wow. um, and wines maybe almost as, as old as that. Um, so for, you know, I have a timeline when I give a talk on this that expands and shows kind of how long our history with alcohol is and how tiny a sliver of that period we've had distilled alcohols. So once you can take, you know, basically circumvent the natural limits of fermentation and get something that's like 90 something ABV. Um, sure. That's like a, it's really a different drug. Um, and so one of the arguments of the book is that um, even though distilled liquors are still just ethanol, we should really think about them as almost a, a different type of drug because it's alcohol at that concentration is so dangerous. Um, if you're drinking, you're doing shots of vodka or tequila, you can very rapidly move through right through the sweet spot. So most of the benefits of alcohol seem to come at about 0.08 BAC. So that's when you're probably around when you should not drive. It's right, <laughs> usually where right. the legal limit is for driving. Sure. Um, uh, you're drinking a, a session beer or, you know, sipping wine. You can kind of stay at that level indefinitely. Um, you're doing shots of right, one, tequila. one and a half an hour for most people with normal body weights or yeah, the way what yeah. I do, maybe two, you know, <laughs> right. two an hour, you know, you can, it depends on if you have food in your stomach, sure. and, you know, there's lots of variables, but basically nor in normal social drinking, you'll stay at about that. You'll, you'll top out about that. Um, you're doing shots of tequila. You blow right past 0.08 into very dangerous right. territory very quickly. Um, so we're just not evolutionarily designed to deal with alcohol at that concentration. What we really have kind of grown up with as a species is, you know, traditional beer levels. So two, three, four, maybe 5% ABV. And that, you know, makes it easier to drink safely when you're drinking something like that. Um, the other important feature, safety feature, is that alcohol consumption has always been social. And it's always been socially regulated in various ways. Um, having private access to alcohol is actually historically quite rare. 
um, typically the only way you would get to drink is communally. You know, there'd be, it'd be stored in a central place. Everyone would gather and drink. Typically, drinking is regulated ritually. So in ancient Greece, these the symposium, this wine party, was regulated by the symposiarch, the person in charge of it. And they'd be in charge of watering down the wine, like deciding what <laughs> concentration to get it at. Yeah. Um, they would decide when to pass the wine around. So if things were getting out of hand, they would wait a little longer. You know, if things were slowing down, maybe they'd make it stronger, pass it more quickly. In traditional China, and, and actually even today at Chinese banquets, uh, you don't drink at will. You only drink when a toast is made. And certain people are ritually allowed to make toasts. And so that's another way to control alcohol consumption. And even if you think about what seem like really informal, modern European situations, you're out having beers at the pub with your friends, there's regulation going on, right? You don't, if I finish my beer really quickly, I got to wait for you guys to finish because we order rounds, right? You don't just order at will. That keeps kind of people people in step with their drinking. Um, if I'm having too many cocktails, having too many glasses of wine too quickly, the the waiter may say may may actually avoid my table <laughs> sure. for a little bit. Sure. Right? There are various ways you can kind of slow people down. Um, you know, even around the dinner table, you know, you help yourself too quickly to another glass of wine. Your mother in law gives you the stink eye from across the table. Um, so there's <laughs> right. we have all these subtle ways where we regulate each other's alcohol consumption which is, it's really hard for individuals by themselves to do that. Um, and so a new development that's really dangerous is drinking alone. The fact that people have private access to alcohol. Um, you know, I can sit alone in my apartment and I've got all this wine, cold wine in the fridge and I can just top myself off whenever I want. It's very hard for humans because alcohol is super addictive. That's one of the most dangerous things about it is it's really physically right. addictive substance. Um, we're also we're not evolutionarily designed to be drinking ninety something ABV liquids. Um, we're also not evolutionarily designed to be drinking alone, and and modern life has made that possible for the first time. And so that's the other the two I call them the dangers of isolation and distillation are the kind of twin banes of modern existence. And then we've seen this kind of turbocharge during COVID, right? Sure, people in COVID sure. lockdowns, um, you know, I could get, um, you know, I couldn't leave my house, but I could get a case of liquor delivered to me at my apartment, <laughs> you know, enough, enough liquor to like kill a small village I could just have in my house. Um, that's crazy. Well, at the same time, we have this, uh, you know, external pressure, uh, you know, and stressor of, you know, the world events causing certain you know, people to try to find some coping mechanism for it. And so yeah. right, it, it, it yeah. definitely, uh, you know, and this inability to to find those kinds of social connections, even in, even in some senses, uh, you know, social media glorification of excessive consumption on yeah. an individual level, you know, as uh uh, you know, we try to find some way to socially connect with each other using these kinds of remote technologies. Yeah, yeah. No, drinking got incredibly unhealthy during COVID. There's there's good data on that now. That drinking, uh, people drink a lot more. They drink more heavily. They drink more distilled liquors. Um, and the problem is because alcohol is so physically addictive, it's going to be hard for people to reverse that. You know, once you ramp up your alcohol consumption, it's hard to go back. But hopefully as people, you know, we're emerging from lockdowns, people are able to go to pubs again, 
um, hopefully those social controls will start to reassert themselves and we'll, we'll, we'll slot back into a more healthy drinking pattern. Sure, sure. What is it about that 0.08 uh, like blood alcohol level um, that makes it so optimized? Like, you know, and wh- why is riding, you know, that line or hitting that that kind of narrow window? Um, you know, what is it about that amount um, that provides the the kind of you know perfect basis, you know, for overcoming some of those you know, prefrontal cortex uh, negative impacts, um, increasing this kind of trust thing and, and pushing that social element. Or in some cases, you know, driving, I know you mentioned the the Balmer peak, that idea yeah. that uh, having the right amount of, of, of alcohol in your system makes you a better coder if you're Steve yeah. Ballmer or Microsoft. You know, what is it about that, that like thin band that, uh, you know, that makes it so effective to, to ride that space? It's just the, it's the right balance between control and loss of control. You know, you're not stupid drunk. You're not slurring your words. You're not, um, you know, being dumb, but you, your PFC is relaxed. Um, your endorphins, serotonins are pumped up. Um, you haven't fallen into the, the strongly depressive um, arm of alcohol inebriation. So um, alcohol is both a stimulant and a depressant at the same time but the depressant effects become dominant if you drink a lot more and you especially if you're drinking really heavily um so it just seems to be the sweet spot Um, what you want is the right balance between control and lack of control and 0.08 seems to get you there yeah and there's this kind of what you mentioned a peak and and kind of decline effect where the the uh, you know that depressive element of alcohol tends to kick in as you know either you've consumed too much or you've stopped then consuming and you're starting not seeing as many of the positive aspects while you're still, still consuming. Talk to me about about how that works. Alcohol is really complex physiologically. So uh, Stephen Brown, the journalist has referred to it as a pharmacological hand grenade. So you've got things like um, cocaine or LSD, that are going in and doing very specific things to the brain. They're, you know, affecting one network in a very predictable way. Um, alcohol is, it's someone like a little kid playing the piano and hitting all the keys at <laughs> once. It's doing all these different right, things right. at the same time. So it's, you know, re- releasing these feel good hormones, serotonin, um, dopamine. Uh, it's, it's, down-regulating the PFC, um, it's uh, then it starts to have depressant effects on motor functions. This is why you know you start to stumble or slur your words when right. you add too much. Um, and it also, you know, as it hits your system, it's getting furiously broken down. We have all this machinery to to latch onto alcohol as soon as it comes into our body and try to break it down and get rid of it. Um, our body's trying to do that. We're breaking it down. Um, so there's some very complex, um, both multiple uh, cognitive effects happening, but then the mix of them changes over time. And that's all affected by how quickly you're drinking, how strong the alcohol you're drinking is, what your tolerance is, do you have food in your stomach? Um, so it's a, it has complicated effects on humans. But the, the reason I argue that um, I call alcohol the king of intoxicants, and it's because it's got these advantages that other chemical intoxicants don't have. So it is relatively easy to dose. If you know what you're drinking, you know, you live in a culture where you have a beer that you drink, you know how much you can drink. Um, it's, it's easy to dose. It has very quick effects. 
you start drinking it and you'll start feeling something in a few minutes. Um, it's got a relatively short half-life. So because we have this machinery that's dedicated to breaking it down, if you stop drinking, the effects fade pretty quickly compared to other drugs. Um, and it does seem to have similar effects across individuals. And so this is where other drugs like cannabis, cannabis has advantages. Cannabis is not physically addictive the way alcohol is. Um, it's also probably better for you physiologically than alcohol is, but it has really variable effects across individuals. So sure, it makes sure. some people really extroverted and energetic. Um, it makes me paranoid and makes me want to go to sleep. So <laughs> right, it's, right. it's not really a party drug for me. Um, so that's that's challenging. It's hard to kind dose. Kind of some long-lasting physiological memory impacts, um, you know. It could, and, yeah, and it, can, it can impact your memory. Um, it's hard to dose because if you're smoking it, you got to know how to hold it in your lungs. If you're doing edibles, the, it takes so long for it to come on that it's hard right. to judge the dosage. Sure. Um, so, you know, with edibles, we've created the distillation equivalent of, yeah. uh, of yeah. you know, for cannabis kind right of, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus the strains, obviously, are so much more right, powerful right. than what we were smoking earlier. Um, but I, I argue in the book that if you gave a group of cultural engineers this task, you said, look, we need this. We need a substance that's easy to make. It's easy to discover by accident. So cultures can kind of stumble upon it. Um you can make it out of anything. It'll have similar effects across individuals. It'll come on fast, but also disappear quickly. They'd invent something very much like alcohol. So, so it's no accident that it's become the dominant cultural tool for, for having these functional effects. You know, and in some ways there probably is an evolutionary reason why it is that way with, you know, human beings that in, in 10,000 years from now, as humans continue to develop, we may develop the systems to break down cannabis in a different kind of way and metabolize it differently, you know, but we are the humans that we are now uh, having yeah. spent the, you know, the last you know, 14,000 years uh, living with and consuming alcohol and, and building a physiological systems and selecting out naturally selecting out, um, you know, bodies that now can process in that kind of way. It's a strange one to kind of think about how these things that we've consumed in the environment, um, you know, have, have shaped us as much as uh, we have created them working together Absolutely. in that kind yeah. of way. Yeah, I mean, cannabis has been around with us for a long time as well, sure, um, sure. thousands and thousands of years. But it just seems to be the case that chemically it's harder for a body to deal with. Um, and we don't have the same. I mean, we have these primate ancestors that have been dealing with ethanol forever. So we had something to start with when it came to alcohol. But yeah, it's hard to know. You know, one possibility I consider in the book. So um, one of the arguments I have against the evolutionary mistake argument is that alcohol is so costly that you would think there would be pressure to create a solution to the problem of our taste for alcohol. And sometimes in evolution, there just is no solution. You know, natural, whatever, uh, random variation doesn't turn up a variant that gives you the solution you want. But in the case of alcohol, there actually is a solution to alcohol. There's a, there's a set of mutations that probably evolved about 7,000 years ago, originally in Southeast China. And they make you, it gives you that flushing reaction when you drink alcohol. Right. Um, a chemical uh, that simulates this effect is actually used to treat 
alcoholism because when you have this gene variant, you don't like to drink alcohol. It makes you nauseous, it makes you flush, it makes you feel, gives you heart palpitations. And so if alcohol were only a kind of parasite evolutionarily, if it was only this kind of negative byproduct, you'd expect this gene complex to spread everywhere because it's the solution to this, this problem of the taste for alcohol. And yet it's it stayed pretty much stayed put in East Asia. It spread a little mm. bit to what we now think of Japan and Korea, um, but it's not very widespread. And it actually evolved independently in parts of Europe and the Mideast and also remained relatively constrained. Um, so we have this kind of uh, genetic solution to the quote unquote problem of alcohol that hasn't taken off. Um, but and if one, there was an evol evolutionary benefit to that, then uh, we would all have it by now? Yeah, if there were no positive aspects to alcohol and it was just all costs, this, this gene variant should be everywhere by now, but it's not. And that suggests that in addition to the obvious costs, there are these countervailing benefits. So people who have this gene variant are, won't get alcoholism, which is great, but they also won't enjoy these other benefits. They won't enjoy the enhanced creativity. They won't enjoy the enhanced trust. And so there's, there's benefits to alcohol that are paying for the costs that, that keep this gene variation from spreading all over the world. Um, but one, there's a group of researchers who have suggested that um, it is spreading more recently, kind of in recent centuries. And it would be interesting if it's the case that with these new dangers like distilled alcohol, the kind of balance between cost and benefit has changed a little bit. And so therefore, we're going to see this gene variant becoming more prevalent. Um, that's a possibility. It's a it's a really interesting but crazy one to think about that uh, you know and I I look at it even like the um you know the the tick that's now uh, spreading throughout the you know south uh, you know southern and southwestern United States where uh, you know it makes people allergic to meat um you oh know, really so, okay. or red red meat right you know and so uh, um, these. You you, know, you watch nature work in mysterious ways to accomplish <laughs> yeah. goals. Uh, yeah. yeah, that could that, become uh, adaptive, right? In an environment where you know too much red meat consumption is a problem. Yeah. So so then, where do we go from here? What is the what is the near term future of alcohol look like? You know, and you know clearly now that looking at it from this perspective, looking at how alcohol isn't something that we need to necessarily make apologies for that certainly there are negatives to the to the behavior um, that involve excessive alcohol consumption and that modes of that consumption especially modes that focus on social consumption uh, more so than individual consumption um, become much more positive ways to do that all of these are great for our <laughs> audience uh, of craft yeah. brewers because I think that social element to this and, and being in that public space and you know enjoying together is something that most you know enjoy and that the uh, you know and if we look at where craft beer is right now today over the last decade and a half of, of development it has become very focused on the spaces where people consume that craft beer the the places the tap rooms going and drinking together and exploring the creativity of a brewer in a place and feeling you know the uh, the environment itself and doing that with each other um, you know and socializing through that process where we can regulate each other but also we can enjoy the experience with each other um, there's so much of what craft 
craft beer looks like today that does seem to align, you know, with, um, you know, what this kind of evolutionary past and example suggests for us. Um, you know, where, where do you see alcohol consumption moving in the future? And, uh, you know, are there some, some takeaways for those that are building these experiences that involve alcohol that, uh, you know, that they can use to, you know, help people consume in, in, you know, the most evolutionary advantageous kind of way? Yeah, that's a great question. So in, in the book, I have a bunch of takeaways, you know, we understand the history of our relationship with alcohol as a species, understanding the, the benefits, but also the dangers, understanding how some of those dangers have become more extreme recently. Um, give us some actionable things we can do. So um, the first one, which I think your your listeners will like, is is drink more beer. <laughs> it's, it's, you heard I'm it not, from Ted. Drink more yeah, beer. Drink, drink less more. of other things. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I'm not a beer person. I will come out and say I'm not a fan of beer, um, or I haven't been. I'm more of I'm more into wine. Um, but you know, one takeaway is if you're drinking. Drink relatively low ABV substances, um, and beer really seems to hit that sweet spot. Uh, you know, anywhere from like three to maybe six percent ABV seems perfect um, for pe- keeping people where they want to be. Um, so I've started drinking more beer. I've started um, actually organized a work thing for some new um, people who are part of this research team, and consciously chose to do it at a pub where they had beer because of what I've learned right in this book that keeping people, you want to keep people right around, right below around that 0.08 level, beer is a safe substance to do that. Um, So, so drink, um, drink lower alcoholic beverages, Um, you know, drink beers that come in at a normal alcohol level. So, you know, we talked about this kind of crazy arms race where you're trying to get 20% ABV beers. It's just, it doesn't taste good. Um, and it, and it basically negates the, the benefits of beer, which is that it's got moderate alcohol content. Um, so that's the good one. news about those beers is they tend to be so expensive that no one drinks them by themselves. They, no, uh, they simply get together in larger groups to, uh, to share small one or two ounce pours of them together. I okay. mean, it's, it's in many ways like that, you know, the, the high end of the wine world where you'd yeah. never want to open a thousand dollar bottle by yourself. Right. right, you know, right. It's only valuable in that social sphere of showing off to one's friends and showing how accomplished or, uh, you know, how uh, excellent one's taste might be. And so, Right. Uh, yeah. Right. The consumption modes are a little different in that, but but I understand what you're saying. But it also seems like someone told me that in the craft brewing industry, there has been a movement toward more toward like session beers, where you're you know they're deliberately lower alcohol levels so that you can drink them continuously with your friends and stay at a safe level. It's been a big move and, you know, for a long time in craft beer, uh, craft beer was positioned against the idea of mass produced lager made by large brewers like Anheuser-Busch and Bev. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that craft beer was able to distinguish itself was by being higher ABV right. or right. You know, more intense flavor, more bitterness, more, more, more in, in every kind of way. And I think that, you know, it's an interesting thing about where we are with craft beer now over the last five years or so, we've craft beer has just gotten comfortable comfortable with beer itself and, uh, you know, and more and more brewers because brewers drink a lot of beer while making a lot of beer. They also like 
to continue to consume. And, uh, you know, what we found over, over the last decade, brewers love themselves to drink lager beer because yeah. a 5% beer, you can drink, you know, a couple of them every hour and still keep your head on. And, uh, yeah. you know, and now what we're seeing is that, uh, that passion for what these beers are is, is passing from brewers to the consumers. And uh, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a great dynamic to watch. Yeah, so that basically is a return to a more evolutionarily healthy strategy. It's it's a return to the way we've been using alcohol historically as a species. So that's a that's an important takeaway. Another is um, drink socially. Don't drink alone. Um, when when humans drink together in a pub environment, anything where you have people coming together, um, especially if you've got food as well. Uh, it's just a much more safe environment to consume alcohol. Um, there's also the tricky things to be negotiated around dealing with non-drinkers, and so um, you know one of the one of the dangers of alcohol is that it it creates if you're in a drinking situation, you're almost inevitably marginalizing people who, for whatever reason, don't drink. Um, maybe they're pregnant, maybe they're recovering alcoholic, maybe they're Muslim, maybe they just sure. don't like alcohol. Um, and it really could disadvantage people like that. Um, so I think another important thing in order to kind of recover the benefits of alcohol without reintroducing some of the dangers of the way it's been used historically is to try to level the playing field between drinkers and non-drinkers. Um, and one of the ways you can do that is have really tasty, appealing, non-alcoholic options available. And it seems like, again, the craft brewing industry, um, you guys have gotten better at making low or no alcohol beers that actually look and still taste like beer. Um, so that, you know, having that as an option for people helps level the playing field. Um, Having a more, one of the things I talk about in the book is the, um, this tension between what anthropologists have called Northern versus Southern drinking cultures. And they're talking about Europe here. So, um, Northern drinking cultures, think of Germany, Scandinavia, and the U S right. inherited this, um, you drink to get drunk. It's mainly men drinking together. Um, you're drinking a lot of distilled liquors, uh, being drunk is kind of you know, something to be proud of, or it's kind of viewed as manly. Um, kids aren't allowed to touch alcohol. It's taboo for children. Um, it seems that that type of drinking culture leads inevitably to abuses. Um, you contrast that to the Southern drinking culture. So what you find in Italy, Spain, places like that, they're drinking mostly beers and wines. They're drinking as families around the dinner table. You're only drinking at the dinner table. Um, everyone's having a little bit. So grandparents are drinking, the kids get a little bit of watered down wine in their class. Um, drunkenness is frowned upon. Drinking to the point of being visibly drunk is considered kind of not an adult behavior. Right. Um, in cultures like that, people drink in a more healthy way. And so, you know, another takeaway is try to adopt more of a Southern drinking culture, you know, make, so one thing I've done with my daughter, my daughter's 15 is, you know, uh, 
introduce her to wine, a little bit of wine at an early age. So, you know, by 14, I was letting her have a little bit of wine if, if it was good at dinner, you know, right. get her to taste it. She's actually developed a really good palate. She's, she's, she's got, <laughs> she doesn't have good vocabulary, but she actually has, sure, has got a sure. decent palate. Um, and, you know, she's seen that we drink wine around the dinner table and it's something you do, but it's part of human life. And hopefully that will help. Um, you know, and she spent a lot, my ex-wife is half Italian. So we, she grew up spending a lot of time in Italy. So hopefully having absorbed in various ways, more of a Southern drinking culture, she'll be protected. I hope against, you know, the kind of Northern binge drinking culture she's going to encounter when she goes to university. Um, so there are ways, it seems like, you know, it's been estimated that up to 15% of the population has a genetic propensity toward alcoholism. Um, so there are a lot of people who have trouble drinking safely right? Right. and yet alcohol, actual levels of alcoholism really vary culture to culture. So very high in Russia and Scandinavia and very low in places like Italy, even though mm. they, they drink a lot of alcohol per capita consumption is quite high, right. but alcoholism rates are quite low. And it, it seems to be the case that some types of cultural practices give you this protective function against dangerous drinking. And there seems like there's a correlation uh, with latitude as well. Um, that yeah. may have something to do with sunshine, but uh, uh, I can't prove causation there. Yeah, right. I've, I've got, uh, I've got uh, bo two boys, 13 and 16, and uh, we're okay. going through that same kind yeah, of thing. I'm trying sure. to, yeah, Trying to make sure that um, there's not a psychological benefit or thrill to the consumption itself, um, mm -hmm. that it doesn't feel like there's a... Uh, uh, you know, like they are cheating or getting something over or, you know, this thrill shouldn't come from sneaking something, you know, that's taboo. Yeah. Um, if they want to enjoy it, they should enjoy it for what it is and understand, mm -hmm. you know, both the positives and the negatives of that. And, uh, you know, so far so good. It's still, yeah, right. uh, it's still it's an tricky. experiment yeah. and process. Uh, um, but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, We'll see how that all works. Well, I think that's a great place to bring this to a close. GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. BSG sources hops directly and processes them in a state of the art facility in Yakima Valley. Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends mimic straight concentrates, but at a better price point. Arrived is the mobile all in one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction and put SS Brutex advances to work in your brew house. Your magazine subscription directly supports our ability to bring you this podcast each week. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and let us know that this content matters to you. Um, Ted, if people want to learn more about uh, the books that you've written, including Drunk, uh, what you do, speaking engagements and whatnot, where do they where do they find you? Where can they learn more about uh, about what you do? EdwardSlayerland.com. Very simple URL. <laughs> so I've got Edward a website. Got, yeah. 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 It's got all interviews, um, podcasts, things like that on there. Yep. Well, fantastic. Uh, you know, again, your thesis uh, connects with me as a uh, endless cheerleader for craft beer in a very <laughs> meaningful way. Um, but I think that it's useful conversation for all of us in the world of craft beer to consider that uh, that beer is not just a vice, that that alcohol consumption is not just, uh, you know, some negative that we uh, put up with or allow um, to exist out here, but in fact, uh, kind of a, a crucial piece of human evolution and uh, even a current, you know, crucial piece of our ability to interact in community, socially, 
with each other. Um, thank you for writing the book. I encourage everybody to go out there and uh, buy it and read it and uh, support uh, Edward Slingerland as an author. Um, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.